This is Dory Clark, author of The Long Game. You're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Join me today is Dory Clark. Dory Clark helps individuals and companies get their best ideas heard in a crowded, noisy world. She's been named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50 and was honored as the number one communication coach in the world at the Marshall Goldsmith Coaching Awards. She teaches at Duke and Columbia University's business schools and is author of the award-winning business trilogy, Stand Out, Reinventing You, and Entrepreneurial You. She's a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review and consults and speaks for clients such as Google, Yale University, and the World Bank. She's a graduate of the Harvard Divinity School and a producer of multiple Grammy-winning jazz albums, is a Broadway investor, takes stunning pictures of New York City skylines, and sometimes creates iconic images in the foam surface of her lattes. Dory lives in New York City and is here to talk her book and is here to talk about her book, The Long Game: How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Welcome, Dory. Bill, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you again. And I say again because you've been a guest on My Quest for the Best in episode 327. Today we're focused on the long game. And I'm really excited to get into that with you. Let's talk about optimizing your career or project choices. What does it mean to optimize for interesting? Thank you so much, Bill. So this is one of the topics that I discuss in the long game. And I was interested in diving into it because so often when we talk about our careers and our career trajectory, and people are are trying to figure out where should I be headed? What should I be doing? A lot of the time, the discussion focuses around optimizing for meaning. Do what's meaningful to you. Do something that helps humanity or short of that, do something that's your passion. Find the passion, which we, of course, all spend a lot of time thinking about. And that's a a fraught topic. But what I came to realize is that oftentimes we can get a lot further if instead of optimizing for meaning, instead of optimizing for a passion, if you have those things, great, by all means, do it. But for many of us, it's really hard to peel the layers back on that, especially if you've been slogging for a while, you might even have potentially lost touch with those things are or just not be quite sure. And so if instead you optimize for interesting, if you think about what are you curious about, what seems like an interesting choice to be exploring, that can actually lead in some really powerful places. And I learned this firsthand because years ago, I made a documentary film and the the heroine of our story was a woman who was 80 years old at the time. She's still alive. She's in her 90s now. And she was a housewife who led a cleanup of a local river that was one of the most polluted rivers in America at the time. She was telling us as we were filming and making this movie that a piece of advice that her mother had once given her when she was literally just like walking out the door to go to college was whenever you have a choice of what to do, choose what's more interesting. And I thought that is good advice for all of us. It's subtle to choose something interesting. You you mentioned getting out of college and the advice for college students is typically pick a high paying job, one with good benefits and 
and get some stability. Contrary to that, this is advice that is applicable to all people, yet for people who are looking to build a niche, to build some recognition, I think it's particularly apt. You learn things by working with Marion Stoddard, who was the woman who cleaned up the Nashua River. You learn things by doing that because you weren't planning to take that diversion in your career at that point. And suddenly somebody invited you to be a director on a film, which you've never done before. How did you think about that process? In many ways, I was living out that principle because I had been a self-employed entrepreneur. I, I was a marketing consultant. And the way that I ended up making this movie, this was not at all my background, was that there was a, a woman that I had met named Susan Edwards when I was working uh, on a political campaign. I was consulting on this lieutenant governor's race. And it turned out Marion Stoddart, who became the hero of the film, she was an endorser of our candidate. And so she did some events with the candidate, Sue, who was a volunteer, and I got to know each other. And at a certain point, Sue said, oh, Marion's story is so inspiring. You know, she cleaned up the river and she's so amazing. Someone should make a movie about that. Uh, you know, you just sort of, yes, that's a good idea, Sue. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know how to make a movie. She didn't know how to make a movie. But the one asset that I did have was I've always been a believer in networks and networking and relationships. So I knew a bunch of people that were filmmakers. And so I offered to connect Sue with them. So I set her up with all these informational interviews and she was appreciative. She went off and had all these meetings. At the end of the process, as she had learned more about it, she came back to me and she said, hey, I think I really want to do this. If I produce it, would you direct it? And I thought, whoever is going to offer me the chance to be a rookie director and pay me for it. That's incredible. So I didn't know how to do it, but I said, yes, I would figure it out. And so Sue and I collaborated together for three years on this project, which was definitely a form of optimizing for interesting. See, that's so important to recognize that we can take choices like this. It's something that we have to choose for ourselves because you also write about in the book, this choosing something that is different than just the seduction of a lucrative contract. You write about Terry Rice, who turned down a very valuable contract because it didn't match his optimization criteria, which is maximizing family time. Can you share that example and what you heard by talking with Terry about that choice and that decision? Yeah, absolutely, Bill. Oftentimes when people start a new entrepreneurial venture, obviously they're a little nervous about where the money is going to come from. For the first time, you have to really start beating the bushes. It would be incredibly tempting if you are a new entrepreneur and, and someone dangles a very lucrative contract. In this case, it was $20,000 a month, uh, great income to, to grab it and to take it. But Terry actually was really smart about it because he did something a lot of people don't do, which is analyze not just the finances or not just what's right in front of your face, but he looked a little bit deeper at the values behind his decision. Part of the reason, as you mentioned, why he wanted to be an entrepreneur in the first place was he was a dad and he wanted to spend more time with his family. And this particular contract, which was being offered pre-COVID, would have required him to go into an office that was incredibly far from his house. It would have been at least two hours of driving a day, possibly even more depending on traffic. He realized that it was going to completely eliminate what the whole goal was in the first place. So he said during that first year, there were times where he was cursing himself and really thinking, oh, did I make a big mistake? Should I go back to them? But he held firm and he now really feels strongly that he made the right decision because what he wanted to optimize for was family time. Knowing that we have choices like that really expands the 
range of decisions we could make about what type of jobs we look for and pursue and accept. So I hope that everyone listening realizes that making a choice that's in alignment with our values is really the most important choice to make for both short-term and long-term satisfaction. There might be times when we need to choose something to earn some money. It might be times when we choose something simply because we want to be in a warmer climate during colder months or vice versa. It's all about making those choices and being aware that there are other factors that we could use. See, another thing that I really underlined when I came across in your book was if you're going to be great at anything, it comes at a price. So if you're going to pay that price, it matters that you know what you're paying it for. You cite an example about Commerce Bank surveying its customers and finding out that they found that their customers valued branch availability as one of the top choices. And they said, if that's what we're going to do, we're going to put a lot of resources behind that. We're going to probably not give the best interest rates on our accounts. People probably won't mind that. It's not that they did anything nefarious. They just followed the same principle. You could choose to optimize things differently. What do you make of that example in terms of companies using that same freedom to choose and optimize around different topics, principles, and values? I'm glad you brought it up. This actually comes out of research done by Francis Fry, who's a Harvard Business School professor and her partner and co-author, Anne Morris. They wrote a book a few years ago called Uncommon Service, which was looking at the question of why it is that so many businesses, in their case, they were particularly looking at customer-facing service businesses, but it applies everywhere, but why so many businesses are just mediocre. And when you ask most people, what are some great companies? There's literally only a few names that would probably come up. The vast majority of companies that anyone could name, they'd be like, it's all right. Why is that? What they came to realize in their research is that at a very fundamental level, the biggest problem is that companies are afraid to make hard choices. We shouldn't be surprised because frankly, individuals are afraid to make hard choices. Nobody really wants to do that in their life either. We like to pretend or create this narrative for ourselves that, oh yeah, we can do it all. We can be great at everything. Or, or somehow, maybe if you're a little more honest, you can say, well, I can be great at one or two things, but I'll just be like fine at the others. You know what? That doesn't work either. What usually is the case, if you are truly going to over-index on something and become great at it, it typically doesn't mean you can be fine at all the other things. It means you're going to have to pick what to be bad at. And that is a, a hard decision to make, like looking yourself in the mirror and saying, you know what, I'm going to be bad and yeah, I'm just going to have to deal with it. For Commerce Bank, if you asked a customer of theirs straight up, hey, would you like to have a really pathetic interest rate? They're not going to say yes. But the truth is, if you couple it with, because that is not what they cared about the most. As you said, what they cared about was branch hours. And so if you're able to say, we have these incredible hours that are much more available and you can go after work, they hardly notice the other stuff. So it's really being willing to make hard strategic choices that enables you to be excellent. What have you found through conversations with people who are managers in larger companies, as well as entrepreneurs, that makes that more palatable so that you can make those hard choices? Is it just a matter of practice? Is it awareness in the beginning that this is going to be a hard choice? So sit down and strap in and get ready to, to make that choice? I think that what makes it feasible, just to, to take the bank example a little bit, bit further, you have to get very smart about what your customers value and don't 
don't value. Because obviously, if you choose to be bad at something that they consider mission critical, that is not going to work. You don't want to have an email company, for instance, like an email service provider that's what we're bad at is sending email quickly. It's like, no, actually, that's like literally the reason that we have the email service. So no, you can't be bad at that. Pick something else. So I, I think that where we can get comfortable is if we have deep enough knowledge of our customer base, and that is empathy toward them, conversations, market research, focus groups, so that we get it. What are the true pain points where if we can alleviate it, they are going to love us? What are the things where they're like, I'd like it, but it doesn't matter that much. And then we can choose effectively to downgrade those elements. That speaks to a really sophisticated and powerful decision-making process. For entrepreneurs and people who are looking to create side hustles and maybe grow them, I love the example from Derek Sivers. Share some background around that and how he uses that phrase, hell yeah or no, as a decision point and a litmus test for whether he's going to accept things or not that we could all learn from. Derek Sivers is a a really interesting character who crops up a few times in my book. He is an entrepreneur. He actually started as a musician. And through being a musician, he became an entrepreneur because back in the late 90s, it was hard for musicians before all the streaming services and things like that to be able to get their music to fans. So he created something called CD Baby, which was a service that would enable indie musicians to deploy their music, their CDs at the time to their fans. He became quite successful. He took a long time with it and it's 10 plus years he was running this business, but he was ultimately able to sell it for over $20 million. And since then, he has become an interesting figure. A lot of entrepreneurs will just plow into another venture. They'll become a venture capitalist, something like that. Derek has become a wandering philosopher, as it were, and he's lived abroad. He's written books and things like that. But one of the things that he has become known for and popular for is actually something that he didn't invent. A friend of his invented and he heard it and any of us can do. It's not always easy to come up with great stuff, but you can find great stuff. And you recognize it when you hear it. That's right. So Derek Siver's friend had this expression and he's like, oh, that's good. And so he popularized it and it's really become, uh, as you say, a litmus test for a lot of people. And that is the way that I think about it or describe it is that most of us are intelligent enough that if something is a fantastic offer, we are smart enough to jump on it. And also, if something is an awful offer that no one would want to do, we're smart enough to say, yeah, no, thank you. The big problem for most of us in modern life is that there are a lot of things in the middle. If you're ranking them, it's like, oh, they're like a six or a seven, and it could be good. Like, oh, maybe that was my business, whatever. And so you talk yourself into it, even though you're not excited about it, or even though it'll take a long time, and I don't I don't know, blah, blah, blah. What Derek Sivers has done is liberated us a little bit. He's cutting the Gordian knot. What he and his friends framework says is that if it is not a hell yeah, meaning if it's not a 10, then it's a no. He wants us to broom out the eights and the sevens and the sixes and just clear the decks because we're better off having white space than we are crowding our schedule with a lot of mediocre or middling opportunities. So there again is popular wisdom 
that you're dispelling, where people think that it's a badge of honor and somewhat of a status symbol to have a crowded calendar, to have a crowded mind, to have crowded desks. And you're saying, wait a second, you're missing out unless you have the white space and become much more selective. What happens when people actually make a choice from your experience, as well as those you've helped and worked with and taught, when you make the choice and say, white space matters, here's how to do it. It can feel emotionally risky for people when we do this, because as you mentioned, research has actually been done out of Columbia University showing that busyness, at least in the United States and in some Western countries, busyness is seen as a status symbol. And so therefore, that's why people telegraph all the time. Oh, I'm just rushing from meeting to meeting. Oh, I'm so busy. They wouldn't do that if it was not considered cool. It's like a, a performative busyness. In fact, a couple of years ago, something I thought something funny happened, which is that the Oxford English Dictionary actually added a new word and the new word was crazy. And you might say, Dory, crazy was a word before. Why are they adding this word? But it turns out that crazy was never an adverb before. And so people have started using a crazy busy. And they, and that is all the ultimate intensifier. So if we were to somehow take ourselves out of that a little bit, it creates some that can often be uncomfortable. One is, gosh, am I as essential or as important as I thought I was or as I might like to perceive myself to be? That's one important one. Another one, which is actually very hard, is if you are in execution mode all the time, it might not feel amazing. You might feel rushed or whatever, but there is a hidden benefit in that you don't have to be having strategic thinking or strategic conversations. There are some really uncomfortable things that we have to deal with in modern business life, especially coming out of the pandemic. It's what should we be doing? What should our strategy be? Is this an appropriate course of action? Is my life going in the right direction? Is the business going in the right direction? These are scary, profound things. And frankly, as long as we're busy, we don't have to address them. So busyness can be a little bit of uh, a tool of distraction for us. And it prevents us from really pursuing more long-range, meaningful goals. If people are crazy busy, they don't have to worry about making real commitments. They always have the excuse of saying, I would have written a book last year, but I was so busy. I would have been able to build my coaching program or build a course. Things like this that are essential building blocks of creating a, a career of distinction get put to the back burner. So it behooves us to talk about what it means to really make a commitment. Starting with how do you start to evaluate decisions that affect your trajectory for the long game? It's easy to think about it in sports because you have a season and people want to end up at the top of their division so they make the playoffs. How do people think about that in terms of being an entrepreneur or business leaders and evaluating whether they're making progress? What really animates my writing of the long game in many ways is this very question because we all know, of course, we've been told a zillion times that success is not overnight. Everybody knows this. Everybody will profess this. And yet a problem emerges because for a lot of people, there is a really big gap between, okay, not overnight. And meanwhile, the other end of the spectrum, how freaking long is this going to take? That, that they ask after four weeks. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And they start to, you're in a tunnel and they start to freak out in the tunnel because they don't know how long it's going to last. They don't see any light and 
And it's, it is very scary when you're in this process, not getting feedback, not getting affirmation, because whenever you start anything, there's no feedback. Chris Brogan, the, the blogger and author Chris Brogan, famously talked about how it took him eight years of blogging to get his first 100 readers. Oftentimes, that's how it unfolds. And so in those dark times, which frankly are necessary to get to the goal, so many people quit, so many people give up. And so I really wanted in the long game to try to create a framework for people so that they could begin to grapple with that and to understand a little bit more about how you can persevere even without getting instant results. You know, when there is a vacuum, how can you nonetheless have the patience and the perseverance to be able to do what you need to do to get the long-term results? You talk about having four components to making a commitment. I guess there's a precursor to that, which is really knowing what your outcome is because not everyone wants to have the glamorous, stereotypical success of entrepreneurs. Not everyone wants to drive the same car or live in the same penthouse or have the same number of global travel miles. Everyone really does have to start with what is my goal? What do I want to end up with? And not by the end of the year, but maybe 5, 10, 20 years down the road and then come back and do the four things that you talk about, which is one, make time for it. Two, make a real commitment to it. Three is get support if you're approaching something big. And four, commit to a date. Yeah, well put, Bill. Absolutely. You talk about somebody who was asked a question while she was having the launch party of the Perfection Detox, Tricorda. And somebody said to her, so Petra, what's next? And the words just left her lips the way that you describe it in the book. She just says, DJing. And as she says that, it transformed because it suddenly became real. It wasn't just a quiet, secret ambition of hers. Now people heard her say that. What happened next in terms of accountability and how it changed things for her to pursue something that she really did want, but had kept hidden before? I'm, I'm glad that you zeroed in on that. I was actually there to witness it. I had just flown in literally from Puerto Rico, and I took a cab from Newark Airport. This is obviously pre-COVID. I took a cab from the airport to go straight to my friend Petra Kolber's book party because I, I didn't want to miss it. And with my suitcase, I ended up in this venue in Midtown Manhattan. So she was up on stage being interviewed about her book, The Perfection Detox. And the interviewer asked innocuous question, the question you might imagine, so what's next? And as you said, she announced, oh, I've thought about DJing. And this was not pre-rehearsed. This was literally just off the cuff. She's mentioning it. But afterwards, immediately afterwards, this is a book launch party. All of her good friends and contacts are there. And so a woman comes up to her that she's had a long-standing relationship with. And Petra got her start in the fitness industry. So she knew lots of people in the world of, of fitness and athletics and things like that. So this woman was the organizer of one of the world's largest fitness conferences. And she walks up to Petra and she's, that's it. And Petra's like, what? And the woman says, you're DJing our party for our conference next year. And Petra said, what? Like she literally, this is like an ambition. This was an intention, but she had literally never DJed before. And she knew that there would be multiple hundreds, perhaps thousands of people at this conference. And she was going to be the DJ. So she panicked for a minute, but then she thought, that's a year. That's a long way away. And of course, 
course, she quickly realized, oh, shoot, that is not a long way away. And she began taking lessons and realizing how far she had to come. But having that date on the calendar, she realized, was an incredible forcing function, an incredible motivating factor. And she did end up DJing this event and really starting a great new chapter for herself. I hope that people hear this example and realize the power of voicing of a dream and then putting a date on the calendar. It's been something that's been so important in my life and career and just things change. You put a date on the calendar, even if it's a commitment to yourself. If you hold yourself accountable to your dreams, which is a phrase I love from the book, be held accountable to your dreams, it makes things happen. There are companies that have policies around this. It's a Google practice where they actually say to people, spend 20% of your time, which is one out of five days, working on projects that are just a passion of yours. What happens from your observation, from your interviews and knowledge of organizations and, and individuals who are pursuing this, when you carve out a little bit of time, how does it affect your ability to take risks if you dedicate a limited amount of your time rather than betting the whole farm? She didn't say, oh, I'm going to become a DJ as my next career. She said, you know what? I'm going to do a DJ as an event. And she dedicated time to that. It really advanced her skill and career in other ways. What happens? I think that's exactly right. 20% of your time is a really useful framework. Of course, famously, Google has benefited tremendously from it. Things that we all use like Gmail or Google News came from employees 20% time. So there can be real business benefits. But in our own lives, it's powerful because ultimately it enables you to thread the needle because people oftentimes tend to go to one extreme or another. For some people, the risk takers in the crowd, they might say, oh, I'm just going to completely abandon my past life and do this new thing. I'm just going to jump in feet first. And that's marvelous. But if you don't have a safety net, if you haven't really tested the idea, God forbid, if you need money or you have to pay a mortgage, this can be a very risky way of approaching things that can either go fabulously well or really badly. It's a high stakes situation that's inadvisable for most people who have responsibilities. At the other end of the spectrum, frankly, that's where most people are. And they're too scared to do anything. They just, well, I just do my thing. And they feel like they don't have the bandwidth to experiment or to try new things because they assume wrongly, because this is how it gets talked about in the popular imagination, that going whole hog is the only other viable alternative, that it's one or the other. But if you are spending 20% of your time, one fifth of your resources, whether it's time or money or whatever on something, and if it doesn't work, like it's too bad. You put in some time, but it is never going to destroy you if a 20% experiment doesn't work. And so therefore it gives you a huge amount of freedom because if it works, fantastic, double down, do more. If it doesn't, you can say, no, that's okay. Too bad. I'll try something else. You live to fight another day and you're exploring and you're learning along the way and it keeps us fresh. And so Petra starting a DJ career on the side is a perfect example of that. In your own career, Dory, you talk about focusing strategically on writing and thinking about how you made those decisions, I think was very illustrative when you were first starting off building your brand as an entrepreneurial and marketing coach and you had opportunities to write for Harvard Business School. You looked for other opportunities and one of the ones that you described in the book is being offered some choices as to how to work with Forbes. Can you talk about how you viewed your writing from a strategic standpoint and how you made the decision of how to end up working with Forbes with multiple articles per month rather than just a couple per month? I think it's an important point for sure because ultimately one of the things that I, I realized in the course of researching the long game is that we have to be thoughtful about arcs of our professional 
professional life. And there are seasons, there's a time to do this and a time to do that. I talk in the book about how to be thoughtful about choosing where at a given point you need to allocate your energy. And so for me, we're talking to 2012, 2013, etc. So let's say nine years ago, I knew that it was going to be really important for me because I had a book on the horizon. My first book, Reinventing You, was going to be coming out in 2013. So I knew I wanted to launch it successfully. And in order to do that, I had to dramatically increase my profile. I needed more people to know who I was and be familiar with my ideas. So it was therefore really important for me to make an extra effort to get my name out there and be writing a lot. As you said, I had been writing for Harvard Business Review, and that was a great thing to do. But the problem is that they just don't produce a huge quantity of work. They put out about five articles a day, period. It's highly curated, and that's it. I thought, okay, they're just not going to publish me every week. If they only have a handful of articles, they're not going to give me all the slots, no matter how much I'm writing. So I have to find another venue. So I connected with Forbes, and when I hooked up with them, there was an option, as you mentioned, which is you could choose at the time, I'm not sure how they structure it now, but you could choose basically whether you wanted to be a paid or an unpaid contributor. If you were unpaid, for some people, that's the right option because they mostly just wanted to put on their resume that they wrote for Forbes. Maybe every once in a while as the spirit moved them, they would do it. I chose to be a paid contributor, not because they were paying me a lot of money, because they weren't, but it also was a forcing function to lock myself in because in order to qualify as a paid contributor, you were required to write a minimum of five posts per month for them. It's a lot. It's a post per week plus some. And I kept that up where I was writing between five and 10 posts per month for them for a period of three and a half years. So I, I created a huge amount of content. It was about 250 plus articles during that time. It was basically a way of locking myself in and pre-committing to the behavior that I knew that was going to be essential to my success. You sidestepped that whole false choice of doing it because you're being paid. You're doing it to create a body of work. There were all of these other benefits, what people see as secondary benefits, they were actually your primary benefits because you knew what your objective was. I just think that was so clever to be able to see how that would force you to dedicate time and to build your platform that way. Thank you. At the end of the day, when you talk about becoming a successful long-term thinker, you say that what matters most is character. How did you arrive at that conclusion and what were some of the factors that led to it? Ultimately, when it comes to success and playing the long game in the way that we talk about in the book, the biggest challenge for any of us is actually getting through that trough, that hard period in between coming up with the shiny vision of what your goal is, what your dream is, and actually accomplishing it. We know, sometimes with coaching, people ask the question, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? It's a nice question. It's a good thing to be asking ourselves. But what's actually interesting for me in this equation is that I think for almost all of us, if it were true that we knew we, we weren't going to fail, if we knew that success was on the other side of the horizon, then and, and someone could guarantee that, then pretty much all of us, aside from the most indolent, would be willing to do the work to get there. What makes it a lot harder is that success is not guaranteed. There's nobody saying, oh, I promise you, Bill, this is going to work out. You have to make a bet. You have to be willing to say, you know what? I don't know how this is 
going to come out. I don't know if this is going to work, but I am going to do it anyway. I am going to blog when no one is reading my blog. I am going to give a webinar when three people sign up for my webinar. I am going to self-publish a book and I'm going to sell it to my mom. And you do all of these things that might feel thankless, that might feel hard, that would make lesser people give up. And what you're doing is you are building the base that you need to enable that success. The success is not guaranteed, but it enables the success to happen. I think there's something very noble and very powerful about doing that, about being willing to persevere even without external validation. If you are able to do that and to consciously, willingly make long-term choices, so many other people are not. And while they are optimizing for short-term gratification instead, I think those people, the long game players, the long-term thinkers, they deserve a true hat tip because I think it is a mark of character. I think that when you say that, it makes me realize and recall some conversations I've had with people in performing arts who pursued it because it was their passion. And they can they contributed, they gave their all, and they made those sacrifices because they wanted to see where their art took them. That to me seems to be like something we need to embrace as entrepreneurs to see it through. Because whether it's arts, uh, business, or even athletics, athletes have no guarantee as to whether they're going to win all their matches after putting in all that preparation. I think that the most high stakes games are the Olympics, where people have put in, it's not months, they've put in a decade in order to be there, a decade of their lives, all their free time, and probably even more as it gets closer, where they're dedicating themselves to be there at the Olympics and put it all on the line for everyone to watch, everyone to measure, everyone to play the replays and analyze how they did. And it comes down sometimes in a race to hundredths of a second in a swim race or a track meet. And it's being willing to put it out there because you see how far you can go. And that's what the long game really talked to spoke to me about. It's how far can you go? How far are you willing to put yourself out there? And if you're willing to do that, here's some guideposts. Here's some advice. Here's how to avoid some of these false choices. Amen to that. Yes. Dory, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Yes, I am. And since you were a guest before, these are all different questions just for you. I love it. I love it. <laughs> You've written about the long game as a career mindset and discipline. What do you cherish about longtime friendships? What I like best about longtime friendships, and I have a couple of friends still in my life who I talk to regularly that I've known since I was 13, is actually just the validation that the same things that I saw about them and that we clicked when we were 13, it's still true. It always just boggles my mind that I think, at least for me, I'm pretty much, this might not be a good thing, I don't know, but I'm pretty much the same person I was when I was 13. And the same people still appeal to me. That is something. What would you say is a must-have and what's a must-not-have to do, say, or have to be in a long-term relationship from your perspective? It doesn't have to be universal, but from your perspective, what's one thing that you need to have and one thing you probably shouldn't do? Oh, in a long-term relationship, he asks the single person. I can weigh in, absolutely. These are, I think these are good answers. I think they're just elusive qualities, but I would say that something that is essential to have is that you need to have a person that is willing to assume the best intent because if somebody is jumping to a conclusion that you're doing something because of this or because of that, it, it, like it already starts as a fight. If you can have someone who is willing to ask questions or assume that it was a mistake or whatever, it enables you to get out of a negative spiral before it starts. Something that I think is essential to not have 
have is, it's an interesting question. I would say that I personally have had trouble with people that are too politically doctrinaire. I personally like to avoid people that are just a little too certain about their politics and a little too vociferous about them. What changes with those criteria from a personal friendship to a professional friendship or relationship? Nice. So thought-provoking. I love it. Obviously, I think those things hold, although... In a professional relationship, I think you just have more limited exposure to people. So therefore, it's a lot easier to be able to to just sort of smile and say, oh, that Bill, he's such a character. So I I think that both of the things that I mentioned, I, I think there's still good qualities to either look for or avoid. But I think that the margin is wider when it is a professional relationship because you just have more emotional distance from it. So unless the person is really extreme, you can usually have more bandwidth for it. It's an inverse relationship between how much time you spend and how much you will tolerate. Exactly. What's one change you've made to stay connected with your community of recognized experts in the last six months during the pandemic? Oh, very nice. So what Bill is kindly mentioning is I run a online course and community called Recognized Expert. And it's a, a great community of 600 plus professionals that are all working and and are along the pathway of building their platforms to gain recognition for their ideas. During COVID, we have stayed pretty connected, actually, because one of the things we do is we have a live monthly webinar that that I host and talk about different issues, whether it's how do you get a corporate board seat or how do you self-publish a book or questions that a lot of people are interested in. But actually, one thing I'm so excited about is that finally, as we're slowly emerging from the pandemic, something has come back that got squelched during COVID, which is in-person meetups. So one of the things that we used to do, and I would encourage members of the group to do this because we have a very active online community, is people would post, oh, hey, I'm going to such and such place. Is anyone around? And we'd have meetups and people would connect and build relationships. During COVID, that was not really possible. But I actually took my first post-pandemic international trip a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I just got fully vaccinated. And so I went to Dubai and I actually got to meet up with three Rexers, as we call call them three members of the recognized expert community. And we hung out a couple of times in Dubai, which was fantastic. That's fabulous. Now, if you had the opportunity to put up a billboard for every entrepreneur and aspiring expert to read for one month, what would be the message that you would put on that billboard to help them understand the importance of the long game? Yes, I would say I'd probably have something like share your ideas publicly because, and this is a mantra of my recognized expert program too, but I I think that ultimately, if we are talking about how do you build a secure financial foundation for yourself, how do you build the kind of career and business you want where you're impacting people, you get to choose who you're working with. Fundamentally, you need to make sure that people beyond the people you just happen to know and you happen to work with have a sense of your ideas. Otherwise, they're not going to spread. You have to enable virality to take hold. And no matter how good you are, if it's just one person telling one person, that really can't gain sufficient traction. But if you're sharing your ideas, whether it's through speeches, whether it's through writing or having a podcast like this, it enables other people to hear it, to discover it, and to share it. Is this a heads up or heads down period for you? And explain a little bit about how that serves you and how you use that 
as a way of making decisions about how to spend some of your discretionary time. Uh, love that question. So personalized, Bill. That's great. So this is a concept that I talk about in the long game that was first described to me by Jared Kleinert, who's actually an entrepreneur that I interviewed in my past book, Entrepreneurial You. And he breaks it down that fundamentally, you have to decide whether you're in a heads up mode, which is when you are you're looking around a picture of meerkat, sort of swiveling its head, right? Like what's going on? You're looking for opportunities. You're connecting with people people, you're being out there, you're being active versus a heads down mode where you're not looking for new opportunities. You are executing. You have found an opportunity and you are doing the work. And obviously for most people where we sometimes go wrong is that all of us have a natural tendency where we are biased typically in one direction or another. And if you're a heads up person, oh, I love meeting people. Oh, I love new ideas. That's great. But at a certain point, it's okay, chop, let's get going and do it. And, uh, and stop coming up with shiny new objects. So we have to practice the art of shifting between those modes, between heads up and heads down. I would say definitely whenever you're in a book launch period, if you are a responsible citizen, you need to be in heads up mode. This Books are the perfect definition. You are in heads down mode when you are writing the book in order to get it done. And you need to be in heads up mode to promote it and to spread the word. Dory. Before we close, what I wanted to do is ask you about another really important idea that you brought out in the long game. You talk about Jeff Bezos, who in his 2018 letter to shareholders wrote about handstands. And I think that it's so important to bring this point out because it helps illustrate and give perspective for people who want that level of expertise. They want the things that come from being a recognized expert. And the long game really is about learning to do handstands. So share with me your perspective when you read this and why you included it. Yeah, thank you, Bill. I'm glad this resonated with you the way it did with me. It's a very apt story because ultimately where a lot of people go wrong is that for all of us, we don't necessarily do the research necessary to understand what success actually looks like, what is entailed in the process of getting there. We sort of make assumptions or we look around and, oh, you know, this one's got it and this one's got it. It can't be that hard. But the truth is, Jeff Bezos's story, I think, encapsulates it. He talks about how a friend of his decided to learn handstands. So she hired a coach to do this, which is a funny concept. But the handstand coach is duly brought in and he tells Jeff Bezos's friend, look, most people think that with about two weeks of consistent practice, they should be able to master a perfect handstand. No, it turns out that this actually is something that takes about six months to to learn. This is literally a 12x differential in the amount of time that most people expect versus what it takes. I think for so often for the facets of, of success that we're striving for, that's often what it looks like. So it's so crucial to understand what is necessary to get where we want to go and to have an honest evaluation so that, so that we really then can persevere because we know, okay, I might be on uh, week 20 here. It's not that I'm doing it wrong. It's just that it takes 24 weeks. I love that description and the perspective that you lend to it. One other thing that Jeff said in his letter was that just by having this perspective, you now have a competitive advantage because you've committed 
to the long game. You've looked to be able to say, I know this is going to take six months to do. And those who misinterpret or underestimate the effort required will burn out, lose energy, lose momentum, lose interest before achieving that level of competence. So that is why it's so important is to know what it really takes and then plan on the long game. Absolutely. Dory, you have been so helpful in sharing your ideas on the long game, both in the book form and on this podcast. I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. Oh, Bill, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here and to have the opportunity to speak with you. Now, Dory, where is it that people could go to find out more about the long game and the work that you do and maybe get a special treat for listening to this podcast? Thank you so much, Phil. I appreciate it. If folks want to learn more, they can get a special long game strategic thinking self-assessment at doryclark.com slash the long game. Dory Clark, author of The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thanks, Phil. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.